Hello, my name's Jane Dacre. Welcome to this Medical Women Talking podcast. Medical Women Talking is a series of recordings of informal interviews with a range of women doctors from different specialties and backgrounds who've had successful careers in medicine. I'm a proud physician and have had the privilege of a very fulfilling career. As I get older and have reflected on my own journey, I've become increasingly passionate about helping other women to achieve their potential in medicine. Combining life and a career can be challenging, and it sometimes feels extremely difficult to keep going. The women in these conversations have all found a way to thrive and have achieved great things. I hope that you'll be inspired by their stories. The podcasts are available to download in any order so that you can listen and be inspired whilst doing other things. Happy listening. Today, I'm talking to Professor Dame Helen Stokes-Lampard. Helen is an extraordinary woman who started in medical politics as a student and then went on to become the chair of the Royal College of General Practitioners. She's currently chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and is able to balance being glamorous, being articulate, being high profile in the media and also having an extraordinary career in academic general practice. So just to start off, Helen, could you take us through your career journey and with edited highlights? So just tell (laughs) us how it started and uh, how you how you got on. Maybe start by by saying, why did you choose medicine? Okay, lovely. Well, I'll try and give you the truncated version. Um, so you'll pick up from my accent that I'm from South Wales originally. I'm, um, I'm brought up in a reasonably tough area. It was a former mining community, uh, but my parents were both teachers. So I'm not pleading poverty, but I went to the local pretty tough comprehensive school. And I knew I was reasonably bright and reasonably good at sciences. And the fact my dad was a chemistry teacher was probably a good indicator that sciences would be of interest to me. But as I was growing up, I didn't really think I was bright enough to be a doctor. And I remember conversations when I was quite young and but thinking at the time that actually dentistry sounded like great fun. And we had a close family friend, somebody who'd been my babysitter, in fact, who was a dentist. And she was fab and glamorous. And that looked like a really great career. So by the time I did my O-levels, because I'm of that generation that did O-levels, I was thinking of a career in dentistry. Um, Got an extremely good crop of results. And when I went to sixth form college, immediately my A-level science tutors started talking about medicine. And I had to suddenly start doing my homework then. There were no members of my family who were doctors. Although, of course, like anyone, I'd seen my share of friends and family have serious illnesses. So I rethought, decided to go for medicine on the basis that if that didn't work out, dentistry would be a great second option. But that I realised the incredible potential that medicine would offer. I ended up going to St George's Medical School in London, which was just amazing. I was determined being a teenager in South Wales in the 80s that I wanted to get out of Wales to see the world, broaden my horizons. Um, And so London fitted the bill beautifully. And I was incredibly happy at St George's Medical School in London and got very involved in student union politics. But when I'd entered medical school, I thought that what I would want to do would be gynae oncology, so gynae cancers. Part, I mean, in retrospect, it was clearly because of the experiences that we've had of family, friends as I was growing up with women's cancers. And nothing in medical school dissuaded me from that. I was, I realised that I was definitely a people person. 
uh, that I was very social. I realized that I was somebody who got stuff done, hence my involvement with students' unions. But as long as I was working with patients, I was pretty happy. I knew I wasn't going to be a lab scientist either. So I chose options that would help for that. I uh, did my elective in gynecology work out in the Middle East and started as a junior doctor. Um, life got in the way and instead of staying in the London area, I moved back to South Wales because I was married to, but I married to an engineer um, who got his first professional job in South Wales. And so suddenly I was back close to home doing gynecology and very happy. But then, of course, life deals you a series of blows and swerves. And my husband had a very severe accident uh, uh, when I was a junior doctor and was in a wheelchair for quite a long time. And also it was the time where there was a real chaos in medical training, particularly affecting gynecology. So we're talking now the late 1990s. And so a combination of factors made me re-examine what I was doing. And I think probably the nail in the coffin, we got a letter from the College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists to all trainees saying that there would be a five-year hiatus before there would be any career progression and that Belgium and Canada were looking for trainees and we might want to consider options. And I realised the thought of staying five years doing what I was doing was going to be intensely frustrating. I was already getting frustrated where I was, itching to go further and go faster. And then my husband and I just decided to do something different and he got a job in the Midlands. I think he was afraid of being uh, the man who'd had the accident and wanted to be known for something else. Um, and I decided to retrain in public health medicine, which is a little ironic given I just told you what I loved was being with people. But I was determined at this point, if I wasn't going to fix them one by one, I'd fix the whole flipping lot of them in one go, hence public health medicine. But on my way to getting a training number in public health medicine, I accidentally found myself in an academic GP training post. Um, the people who were looking to give me a number said, you need some experience in general practice. And there are these amazing, innovative academic posts coming up in Birmingham. They're piloting them. Something like that might be fantastic. And I, Jane, I just found my happy place. I started that academic post and within weeks, I knew that I'd come home. So that was how I ended up as a GP. So and the rest we can talk about again. Now, it's interesting that that it was a set of circumstances rather than um, some particular role model or inspirational figure or, or or whatever, which is which is actually quite unusual in the people that that that, that I've been talking to. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've skipped over so many other influences and people. I mean, there, I had some amazing educators in general practice, in medical school, and then subsequently. And I was surrounded by a bunch of brilliant GP trainees when I was doing Ops and Gynae in South Wales. And they all seemed to have such a fantastic perspective on things. And I remember some powerful moments of how they seemed so much more knowledgeable about general medicine than many of my colleagues did. However... It was actually feeling it, having a go at it that, that transformed it for me. And I think that brilliant balance of doing some academic work, doing some teaching work, as well as that wonderful uh, richness of what I would call traditional general practice, where you could follow up patients over time, you could get to know their extended families and the society in which they're based. And it probably opened up in me the realisation that I really care about people in their entirety. The body parts are fascinating, but it's whole people and whole communities and systems that really interest me. Uh, and that probably shaped my career direction uh, for a long way to come. But yeah, serendipity played a big part in my career. Um, and I have to be very honest about that. And it has continued to do so. But I suppose if I've done anything in that, it's to allow space for serendipity 
I'm a, I'm a very organised person. I'm, you know, I'm certainly not certifiably obsessive compulsive, but I'm very organised. And so I have to consciously make space to allow serendipity and a chance to factor in what happens to me. You can't plan everything. So, so you got involved with the College of GPs at a relatively early stage in your career. How did how did that happen? So I, I mentioned involvement with Students' Union when I was a medical undergraduate, uh, and I ended up doing a sabbatical to run the Students' Union at St George's in 1994, which is a really interesting time. Um, and during that, it made me realise that, because that also involved working with the Trades Union as well, because you're the BMA medical student rep as well. And I made a conscious decision. Um, I was asked, would I consider standing for the National Union of Students um, nationally having finished my post and decided not to because I realised I wanted to focus on the quality and standard sides of college work as opposed to the trades union bit subsequently. So I'd always had in my mind thinking I was going to OBS and Gynae that I'd reach out and try and get involved in the college of obstetricians and gynaecologists. But of course what happened is I got into my training practice as a GP and discovered that one of the doctors there was involved in the local faculty and they they asked me to come along to a meeting. They said it'd be a great way as somebody new to the Midlands to get to know some local doctors, make some new friends. And of course before I knew it I was co-opted onto the board and asked to sort of help out and they encouraged me to stand as a national rep at the Royal College of GPs. And so suddenly I found myself learning very fast about medical politics in the GP land, um, which opened my eyes to possibilities. And I think because of my previous experiences, I realised the power of doing things by committee, the need to be very patient when naturally, internally, I'm a, I'm a rabble rouser, I'm a pulpit thumper um, to get things done. But actually, I've learned to dial down my energy and enthusiasm and passion to control it and use it by playing the game, playing, you know, doing it by committee and influencing from the inside. But that was a decision I made probably subconsciously to start with. And then subsequently, I've continued on that route because it seems to work for me. Which is, and so you you then continued your career in parallel, really, in the College of GPs. Um, yeah. So why did you decide to stand to be chair? <laughs> well, I think I, I didn't I didn't set out to be chair of the College of GPs, and because the GPs are different from the other colleges, and that they have a chair and a president, um, but the chair being the equivalent of the president in other colleges, I. So what happened was I, I regionally sort of I did some regional stuff having been trainee rep and then I was asked will I be regional treasurer and a great way to know any organisation is to learn about the money so I became regional treasurer and through that I got to know national financial stuff with the college and a position came up on the audit committee nationally for the college and my husband was an engineer um, and he'd been a national quality auditor and. I remember us talking about it and saying, you'd be really good at this. He said, you, you can, he said, despite your energy, you can be very analytical when you need to be. He said, it'd be good for them to have somebody who thought about auditors more than the way you medics generally do, which is often just tick boxes about patient care, but think about audit in the true sense. So I stood for it and got it. And I think they were a little surprised that this relatively young female had appeared from nowhere. Um, and certainly I stood out in the rooms when I attended the early meetings. I, I My face was unlike other people in the room. My accent was unlike other people in the room, but they were incredibly welcoming. And I think perhaps the enthusiasm I brought landed well. And then in time, I was encouraged to stand for national treasurer. So the first, there were many jokes about being the first woman with the college checkbook at her disposal. But it was an amazing time because the college had just purchased its new headquarters. We had a financial model that needed to be fulfilled in terms of 
taking up uh, conferencing and hotel facilities, uh, estates management. And I just enjoyed learning about different things, met all these amazing people. And suddenly I was working closely with these incredible inspirational role models, both within our college and then starting to see them from around the wider landscape. So, you know, Claire Gerarda was chair of our college when I was first elected as treasurer. We had uh, our president was Iona Heath. We had amazing people like David Haslam and Mike Pringle and Steve Field were around me. And then Maureen Baker became chair. People started tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you should go for this. You should think about it. And it was when Maureen Baker was chair, she encouraged me to have a go at the media side of things because because of the flexibility of my academic job, I could do media on Mondays, which few other GPs could do. And suddenly I started doing media things and realising I could explain things fairly clearly. I mean, I always say that's what good general practice is about, is explaining complex things in ways that are accessible. And it just took off. And I think I wouldn't have stood if people hadn't tapped me on the shoulder. And I think that's a lesson I've taken forward in life, that if you don't encourage some people or hold a mirror up to them and say, you know, you could do this, people won't think it for themselves. And those are often the people you want to be doing these roles. Uh, and then the morning I woke up having been elected by a very narrow margin, it was a very strong field. I remember lying in bed thinking this overwhelming, comp, you know, this sort of insecurity and uh, inadequacy pouring over me thinking, what have I done? How on earth am I going to carry this off? Uh, but I guess if people don't have those kind of complexes, they're probably more the ones we have to worry about than the ones that do. <laughs> well, and uh, absolutely. So how was it then? being the chair of the College of GPs. It was, well, we were we were around a little bit together. We overlapped together. It was quite a turbulent time, as I suppose it always is. How, how was it? Oh, you, you were very kind and generous to me, Jane, and very supportive, and I shall never forget that, so thank you. It was an amazing time. I mean, I'm not everybody enjoys leading a college. I think that's fair to say. Uh, I certainly did, um, and I when I came to the end, I remember reflecting that, 80% of it was the most amazing job I could ever have wished to have done and probably the best job in the world. And 20% of it was hell on earth and it was truly awful. And I think those extremes and that passionate response that that brings out for me kind of gives you a flavour of it. You know, you are so, when you are the very visible leader of your tribe, a very big tribe in both our cases, um, you become personally attacked and personally vulnerable but you are also in such a privileged position to get stuff done to influence and also to inspire and encourage those who need it so certainly general practice was in the doldrums at the time I took over people told me I was completely mad to entertain the prospect of standing but, you know, during those few years, we did turn around the tide of morale. We did suddenly get massive upswing in people being prepared to apply for training places in general. We couldn't fill the jobs uh, back in 2015-16. And suddenly all the training posts were filled and we were filling more than ever. Um, and by 2019, we got the government, not the government, sorry, NHS England, plus the government, to agree to the biggest single cash injection into general practice in the history of the NHS as part of the uh, long-term plan. Of course, now a few years on, those things quickly get forgotten as so many other trials come along. But I do feel that I made a positive difference in some ways. And I learned so much. And I met so many amazing people. So best time of my life, probably. 
I think I probably agree with you about my time at the College of Physicians. I'm a great fan of uh, being involved in medical royal colleges. There's something about having somewhere else to go to when life at the coalface is a bit is a bit difficult. But as a glutton for punishment, you went on to the academy and then had to deal with COVID, didn't you? So tell us about that. Yeah, that, you know, Jane, as we look at our careers, it's back to this serendipity thing and we don't know what's going to come up and what's going to happen. And when you get to senior roles, as we both well know, some things go your way and some things don't. And you apply for some things and don't get them. And it's always interesting, I think, when talking to junior colleagues, they seem shocked that when you're quite the senior position, you don't get everything you go for. But it's it's just part of the, the landscape. It's whose fit, face fits at, at any one time. And I, I went for one senior role and I didn't get it, but was hugely supported by recruitment agents. And it helped me learn more about myself and what I wanted to do. So I stood for the Charity Academy, for people not aware, to head up the academy. It has to be somebody who's headed up a Royal College previously. So there are, at any one time, only 20 or so people who are really eligible to stand. But of course, so maybe sorry to, to interrupt, just a quick sentence or two about exactly what the Academy is. I'm not sure everybody knows. So the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges is probably the most important medical body that most doctors have never heard of, and certainly the wider public has never heard of. But it's the umbrella body that brings together the 24 Royal Colleges, colleges and faculties that set the standards for people to become consultants in any one discipline. That's a sort of rough, a loose sort of way of defining it. So it includes all the Royal Colleges, which of which there are colleges in Scotland and Ireland, as well as the ones we know are based in, in England. Um, but there are faculties, you know, we've got faculties of public health medicine and rehabilitation, as well as colleges, you know, Royal Colleges of Ophthalmology. So there's a whole breadth of medicine is in there. And those colleges in turn represent over 220,000 doctors in the four nations of the UK and Ireland. A lot of our work as an academy is behind the scenes on education. So ensuring sharing of information about uh, education standards. And so we work with bodies like the GMC. But also a really important role is collaborating to put a unified voice on about big decisions. So sometimes that's clinical matters. So the standards for diagnosing death, for example, are owned by the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, something that cuts across all disciplines. And there are other areas where we collaborate in the common good. So, of course, when the COVID pandemic came along, suddenly all the colleges, all the disciplines needed to work together in new and innovative ways. And the Academy played a massive part. Now, I came into the Academy in, as chair in officially in July 2020. Well, of course, we were well underway with the pandemic by then. So it was my predecessor, Karen McEwen, who had got the ball rolling in terms of setting up structures. But it has been a remarkable few years subsequently, keeping the colleges together at times when their members have wanted to pull apart. You can imagine the tensions that there have been across different disciplines, some not able to operate when they wanted to, others completely overrun, whether it's A&E or intensive care, the community feeling forgotten about and abandoned with a huge upswing of demand and a huge negative tide uh, from the media. So there have been lots of different challenges. But, you know, working with the leaders of those disciplines is the biggest privilege. They are phenomenal individuals. I mean, when rightly so, you'd expect colleges to elect and select some of the brightest and best. But 24 individuals who are the brightest and best don't always work well together. And what's been brilliant is how they have done so for the, the good of their colleges and the good of the public. 
That's fantastic. So, so we've talked about uh, your your career and your career to to date. What what's helped you along the way, and what happens? How do you deal when things are maybe not going quite so well? <laughs> Great question. So, you know, I always say that I learn more from failures, or more from when things go wrong, than you do from successes, because those are the times when you really have to stop and think about what's happened. So how do I deal with it when things go wrong? In lots of different ways. With the small little irritations, it's, you know, it's a personal hygiene factor. It's what do we do to keep ourselves sane and well? And I love my garden. If I, if I need to sort of do something physical and get outdoors, so I love being outdoors. Um, <laughs> many years ago, I came to the realisation that if I don't get some fresh air every day, that I'm a bit like a, a plant and I wilt. Um, so mind you, I did use that as an excuse to buy myself a convertible car at the time, and I've never been without a convertible since. So you make of that what you will. And actually, friends and family are so important to me. And I have very strong groups of friends, but different groups of friends, you know, some GP friends, some old university friends, some friends far away from medicine. And a very close group of friends who've gone through senior medical leadership experiences that I have. And, and, and knowing that you've got people who've got your back, who genuinely care about you uh, and aren't in competition or that they've got no reason to be anything other than supportive is very powerful. I'm very lucky. I've, I've you know, been married many years and, and, and my husband is wonderful. We don't have kids and that's an interesting one as a female leader. Uh, we didn't have children by choice. Um, there's no tragedy behind that. Uh, and at certain stages of my career, that's felt like I've been a bit of an odd one out. And um, nowadays, I think it's much more acceptable just to say it's just not right for us in our relationship. But the pressures that it brings both directions are significant. And I think we do need to be quite open in talking about those because, you know, my many friends and colleagues who had children have had to make sacrifices that are particularly acute for a few years. And that's fine. But it's not that it has changed their career course. It's merely slowed things down a little bit for a few years. And I think being quite open about that with one another is important. And what else do I do to deal with really? And when, when it's really difficult and I am upset, I'm lucky, I'm naturally resilient. So I, when you do these sort of quite in-depth personality profiling, I know that I am very empathic and sensitive. So I feel things very hard. I feel things very keenly. But I am lucky. My natural resilience is that I bounce back quite quickly. So if people are mean to me or I fail at something, I take it very hard. I then go away, lick my wounds and bounce back relatively quickly. And, and I think realising that about myself, so I think that's how you benchmark yourself against others was helpful. Um, because sometimes you see situations where you couldn't understand why others weren't as upset as you were. And yet two weeks later, they were still in a bad mood about something. Whereas I'd have had my 48, 72 hours of feeling really wretched and it was all over and behind me. Um, so I think there's a big thing about getting to know yourself and taking feedback and using it to build up a picture of who you really are as opposed to who you think you are or indeed who you want to be. That's very good advice for for people coming through. So Helen, you you are moving on from the academy in the in the summer. Any idea about what we might where we might expect to see you next, or is that secret? <laughs> I genuinely don't know myself, Jane. And um, I do know there'll be no more places in colleges for me because I have there is nowhere to go. I have loved my time working with the Royal College of GPs at the Academy. It's been incredibly fulfilling. But it's time to move to something different. Um, 
you know, theoretically, you know, I'm still a GP partner. I've stayed a partner in my surgery throughout all the things that I've done. Um, and I've stayed a professor at the University of Birmingham, although I think they've had a pretty poor deal out of it as they haven't seen a lot of me um, of late. So plan A will be back working with them. But I am open to see what the future brings. My passion, you know, I, we haven't touched on the work I've done setting up the National Academy for Social Prescribing, which is now quite a big, thriving, independent charity looking at all the stuff that's good for our health and well-being that's out with what the NHS and social care offer. So the advice, the guidance, the green spaces, the sport and exercise and all those things that help us live more fulfilling lives. Um, I'm a trustee at Macmillan Cancer. Um, and the stuff that really excites me is about true whole person care and building better society. So if somebody can offer me a job that bundles that lot together, I'd be all ears. Well, you never know. You never know. So so as um, as we're coming towards the end now, is there anything that you would be able to say to maybe people who are listening to this podcast who might want some pearls of wisdom for you about what you think is important in having a successful life and career in medicine? So I think that first point to reiterate what I've said a few times is about getting to know yourself. How do you work? What 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 lifts you up and what drags you down? And so making space for the things that lift you up and being aware of the things that drag you down and compensate for them. Having great support systems around you. So that's friends, family, whatever it is, so that when you need it, you know where to go. Making space for serendipity, so being open to opportunities. And when you know that you've got a gap or you're looking for something, actively going looking. Because whilst things will land in your lap, as a doctor, we're really lucky how many opportunities do come up. We certainly have to have our eyes open and ears pinned back to look for them. And always be nice. Um, I think it, that served me very, very well. And I have a mantra, which I often use with students I'm training, which is that Work on the assumption that everyone you work with is lovely. Some people will hide their loveliness, and this applies to patients just as well as it does to colleagues. Um, but fundamentally, it's not a bad starting point because it really does put you in a positive frame of mind at any interaction. Always keep confidences. Um, people will, will never forget if you breach their confidence or lie. And I think at the end of it, you've got to be true to yourself. If you're being asked to do things that really undermine your personal values, you won't sleep at night. And only you know what your personal values are. But so, yeah, know your red lines and don't cross them. That's wonderful advice. So, Helen, thank you very much for talking to us today. I'm sure people will love to listen to you. Thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. There are many more medical women talking in this series of podcasts. Please have a listen to some of the other inspiring women. You'll definitely find something to inspire you.